Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, since we're recording this on the, the weekend after Thanksgiving, not quite sure when this will be posted, but um, Merry Christmas upcoming and happy holidays to everybody out there, because this will probably be in December when you're hearing this for the first time. Uh, but my little question for you here today is Black Friday and Cyber... Mm, Monday. No, 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 no. Cyber donations to the Double Loop podcast through Patreon.com. Excellent. We could use that, yes. Uh, I have one for you. It's, it's a little little old school here. Uh, ever ever heard of a man by the name of John Wesley Harden? No. Oh. Uh, he was an outlaw from the Old West, and he was rumored to be so mean that he once shot a man just for... Just for snoring too loud? Well, that was the rumor, but it was actually for not donating on Patreon. Oh, boy. That's serious now. He's a mean guy. Do you remember those Time Life series? Uh, it, it might have been before your time. Maybe, maybe. maybe. Well, thank you this week uh, to a few people that have uh, joined us as contributors, patrons of the Double Loop podcast. Uh, and that's a big thank you to Brian. Uh, but also to Adam and Mara. Thank you all three for uh, going on to patreon.com slash double podcast and helping support the show, which also lets you guys access all of the older episodes from episode one through about 100 or so uh, and see some of the, the stuff that we're going to be posting onto patreon.com. Hopefully it'll be kind of an every week thing along with our regular episode uh, extra content videos or papers or notes, different stuff like that uh, onto, uh, onto that site. In speaking of Brian and old episodes, uh, Eric, you may recall we did an older episode, episode 119, where we interviewed Brian Orr and Scott Verbonis of Go Evidence. Yes, yes. Yep, uh, regarding uh, VMD process. And, well, I just wanted to give a shout-out to our friends at Go Evidence. Uh, they sent me a nice little gift. Uh, well, Brian particularly sent me this uh, very, very nice – I'll have to take a screenshot. We'll put it up on the, the premium content thing. But it is a – it's a postage stamp and in a nice little frame. I'm showing you on camera, but it's uh, – you can kind of see the little, little yeah. frame. Yeah. It is – our friend Juan Vucetic. Oh, I was actually, I was going to guess that actually. <laughs> it's a little oh, very good. screen, but I'm like that kind of looks like Juan Vucetic. <laughs> right, and you know, you did a you did a podcast where you actually talked about Juan and the Rojas murders and all. Right. Yep. Anyway, so it was it was really nice. It was a nice little surprise in the mail, and I had sent them a couple of cases, but I and I, in fact I thought it was the evidence coming back, and I thought. Because I sent them papers to do some processing. I always send my, my evidence there for processing since I don't have a lab here. And I, I was expecting the papers coming back, but it felt much heavier. And I thought, are they just putting like the images now on like a, like a drive, like an actual, like, like a, you know, a solid state drive? It has the technology come so cheap that people just throw things on disposable hard drives and, you know, throw it your way but it was not the evidence it was a this postage stamp that's very cool yeah i got yeah. thank you to brian and go evidence uh that's great and that was a great episode too talking about vmd and all the different processing that uh, that they do uh, in all their machines and how it's cheaper than you might think to deposit gold 
onto evidence to develop fingerprints. And pretty successful from what they were talking about and discussing how many how many times they're still able to develop prints, you know, even post super glue and dye stain and all and and get get print. So it is a service that they that they you offer for crime labs. So if you have evidence from cases, particularly from a cold case or something that might benefit from that, consider additional processing. It can still develop prints years later. Well, um, before we have a guest here today, but before we get into things with him, just since we've talked about it before, first off, did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did, yeah. I had a, I had a nice, uh, nice, quiet Thanksgiving, family, turkey, you know, all that, and yeah, it, was, it was nice. You? Yeah, uh, me as well. A uh, bunch of people came over, family, and, and um, big turkey and everything. Uh, but the big question, have you, have you made it through the new Mystery Science Theater episodes yet? I, do, I, was, just think, I was just thinking that. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So uh, fans of the show know that uh, I am a – well, uh, you are too, but I'm a huge Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan. And watching the, those shows for Thanksgiving has been a tradition for – you know, ever since basically 1990 for me. And so it was uh, really nice to see some new episodes being dropped on Thanksgiving. So I've made it through the first three so far. I'm halfway through. I uh, I, I, I saw kind of parts of a couple because I was cooking at the time while uh, my son was watching some of them. <laughs> he commented specifically on Mac and Me. And, Mac uh, and Me, right. The, uh, the craziness of that movie. Um, it's but- Terrible, as it should be. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, let's get into things here today. Uh, I want to give a very warm welcome and and thank you very much for coming on to the show, uh, Professor Cedric Newman uh, from Sandy, South Dakota. Got the wrong SD abbreviation there. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for for coming on to our show to talk about uh, kind of your side of uh, the fingerprint business. Uh, good evening, and uh, thank you for having me tonight. And Cedric, uh, and for the listeners that that don't know, uh, it is a pleasure for me. Cedric and I have known each other for quite a few years in the profession, and it's uh, it's quite a pleasure to have you on. We've talked about your research for years now, so it's nice to put a voice to the the research and and a personality to it all. And I hope we get into uh, a, a lot of different great discussions tonight. Yeah, I mean. Uh... I've heard uh, my name mentioned a lot on the old shows. And, uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, Thanksgiving, I feel like the you know the weird uncle that everybody talks about, but nobody ever sees. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, at least your your uh, listener will, I can say, put a, an accent on the name at least. Well, speaking right. of accents, um, uh, listeners who may not have met you in person um, may be a little confused because you don't have the traditional South Dakota accent there. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners about uh, where you're originally from? Well, I'm originally uh, from uh, Switzerland, from the French part of Switzerland. So I grew up uh, speaking French, and that's where my accent comes from. Okay. okay. But your name Newman is is German, so you've got a German background, but spoke French, right? I mean, it 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 could be it could throw someone from Switzerland off to see your name, but to then hear the accent. Well, my uh, my father was uh, German. He ran away from uh, Germany uh, just after the World War Two, um, and for some reason he stopped in Switzerland. But um, there <laughs> there are a fair amount of. A fair amount of uh, Swiss people that have the same last name as me in the German part of Switzerland. Right. 
And, you know, one of the things we like to do is get into our guests' background and how they got into forensics. So I'm going to ask you the standard question that we ask all of our guests. Why should the fingerprint community be so happy that the show Miami Vice exists? And how did Miami Vice influence you to becoming a forensic scientist? <laughs> yeah, I think you know too much about me but already. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the reason is that when I grew up, uh, so there was the Miami Vice show playing in uh, on Swiss Swiss TV. Yeah, uh, Michael Mann. Were, yeah, yeah, and, uh, and I think they may be like a year behind uh, in the United, maybe two years behind the United States. But I was uh, I was waking up at night and sneaking into the living room to uh, to watch the show because it was a late night show. And uh, and growing up, I really wanted to uh, to wear white shoes, no socks, you know. <laughs> Pastel, uh, pastel outfits and, and have, have a, a big, really big, uh, big silver plated gun. Um, drive around in my Ferrari and fight the the bad guys selling drugs. And have a pet alligator too. Uh, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I definitely wanted to have a cigarette boat. That's for sure. Yeah. So when uh, when I had to I finished high school and I had to choose a career, I was seventeen and uh, I wanted to I really wanted to work in uh, drug enforcement, but I was too young to go to uh, detective schools in Switzerland uh, that you could only go when you're twenty. So I had to choose something to do in the in the meantime, and I went to uh, to the university down the road, who just happened to have uh, uh, one of the first an oldest forensic program in the world, and uh, studied forensic science. And that was the University of Lausanne? Yes. All right. Which is also, Glenn, where you got your uh, PhD a few years ago as well, right? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, Cedric was already finishing his, basically, by the time I was getting in, into my work. But, Cedric, actually, that, that's, a, that's a great point as well. Your thesis actually isn't on fingerprints. No, I, um, when I was, uh, you call that a senior, I believe, um, I, uh, we all had to do research, like as a, as a research project, as part of the, the, the requirements. And I, I, did, uh, I did some research on uh, inks, like writing inks from pens. Okay. And then, um, and then I, uh, I kept working on that uh, for several years, actually. And, um, and I designed a, a system that... Uh, that digitalized and and automate the search of inks at the United States Secret Service, and that that was my PhD project. Oh, okay. So, so like if if they want to analyze the ink with uh, any of their equipment, and you could then sort out from different characteristics what like brand of ink it is. Is that kind of what what that was? Yes, they were brand model and uh, initial year of production. Oh, very interesting. Uh, is that still being used by the, the U.S. Secret Service today? I believe so. I've yeah. heard otherwise. Uh, they used to they used to search manually through uh, more than ten thousand uh, records. So they had like antique file cabinets uh, with chemical information that were dating back to the 60s, 70s. And so we put everything on a computer and uh, we went for from a couple of weeks of search to uh, a few minutes. That's amazing. 
And then for for Cedric, when I had a chance to actually meet you, uh, it was in 2006 and it was in Scotland. And I think I had just at that point proposed my, my memoir at Lausanne. And again, you were moving along in your PhD research already, but you were there in Scotland and, as well presenting um, fingerprint statistics. And so why don't, we, why don't we go back to that moment of what you were do- doing in the early days, we'll say 2004, 5, 6, where um, you started getting involved in statistical models for, for fingerprints. Yeah, so, I mean, the very early in my career, I would say, or even in my uh, degree, I, I realized that I was not meant to do case work. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I mean, I... I went to the local uh, crime scene unit in my, in my town and I didn't really have the best experience and I I was just not interested in casework so and, and furthermore I was I was not particularly interested in spending uh, lots of time in the laboratory in uh, you know doing biology or chemistry so I found that analyzing data collected by other people was a lot uh, not not more comfortable for me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and um, so my my thesis, although it had a lot of chemical parts, but I was mostly focusing on the pattern recognition aspects and the statistical aspects. So um, so at some point in 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 Switzerland, you have a time limit on how many years you can be a teaching assistant and or research assistant. So when I uh, I went through my five years, then uh, my uh, PhD director said, "Well, you can keep working on your PhD, but you need to find a real job now." <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, that was two thousand two thousand three. So in two thousand three, I applied to the forensic science service in the United Kingdom, uh, where they were looking uh, somebody to work on uh, one of the grants that Christoph Shampo obtained from Tiswick, actually from. So it was a it was a a United States grant that was awarded to the British government. Right, and, Department of Defense. And, and that grant was about uh, developing a statistical model for fingerprints. So I got hired as the lead uh, scientist on uh, developing that model together okay. together with a, a, a colleague that uh, Dr. Roberto Pusch-Solis was uh, and, also hired to work on that, on that project. And, and it's worth mentioning, too, that essentially the army the military was interested in a fingerprint model because they were interested in something that allowed for at at the time basically you had examiners that could only offer if you will quote unquote absolutely certain identifications or not and they wanted to capture intelligence and information somewhere in the middle there for you know obviously for purposes of intelligence and some of the decisions that they were making in theater. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I was, I mean, I was, I guess I was too junior and uh, I, I'm not exactly sure. I was not particularly involved in the conversation of high, high intelligence, USI intelligence, uh, you know, reasoning and things like that. So, I mean, yes, they were clearly the aspects that uh, we felt when they came to visit several times uh, to monitor the progress of the project but the, um, from the forensic science service perspective, we wanted to uh, to bring fingerprints to uh, the same level as what DNA was doing at the time. So reporting uh, statistics for for fingerprints in the same way as we did for DNA. And and I guess at a higher level than than me at the time, there was some 
other discussion going on, but I can see that I can see why the U.S. military was interested in that. So then, after you you know you start this project, um, you uh, you start basically going around and presenting on it, and that's when I saw you in Scotland when you famously got booed by practitioners for presenting on statistics. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Booed. Booed. Well, boos and hisses. If you uh, if you put uh, the the presentation in context, there was uh, I believe that was just a few weeks after they released one of the first reports on the Mackey case. So it's, it's oh. not when the Mackey case happened, but it's when the, there was the first review of the Mackey case and why the the potential error and and people were still very much believing, or some people were still very much believing that this was not an error and that uh, Officer Mackey was lying. And, and um, wh- where exactly was the conference at? In Scotland, uh, okay. in, I think it was Glasgow, or in, slightly outside of Glasgow. Okay, right. so yep. that that makes a little bit more sense. I mean, I'm I'm thinking. I mean, I've seen presentations that were controversial at the IAI, and I know this wasn't the IAI conference, but you know, no one was actively booing. And I, I mean, I guess I've seen video of of uh, parliament. Yeah, right. <laughs> they get a little bit more. You know, vocal with the boos and hisses, but uh... that's that's what it was like. That's exactly what it was like. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a uh, it was a pretty uh, enough thing. I mean, I had some presentation on about my belt, but that was in my own, I would say, country since I was working for the you know for the United Kingdom or working for the Queen. So, right. so yeah, it was a uh, it was a bit of a surprise, but you know we. Uh, you, you learn to grow a thick skin when you are trying to do that kind of research. I guess so. I don't know if Cedric, you remember, but I presented, you know, a little bit after you, and and I presented box plots, and that upset them. The box plots just showed variability between examiner markings, and they lo- they lost their minds. <laughs> box plots. They got very upset by the box plots. So Cedric came to my rescue and actually said some nice comments as well at the end, and we became friends after that. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I will always remember uh, uh, your... Uh... Your kilt the night before, ah, ah, right? right. <laughs> and, and and to this day, I'm still trying to figure out if you really have some Scottish origin on that. <laughs> Clan Langenberg. If you uh, listeners out there uh, aren't aware, uh, Glenn does have some Scottish ancestry, and will commonly wear a kilt to uh, banquet nights at the conferences. That's that's kind of where all that uh, <laughs> that came from. Uh, sorry, uh, Cedric, go ahead. No, I mean, uh, I think the the listener may not realize how bad the, the spirit in the community was uh, in this in this early 2000, all the way probably to I, I would say the end of the really big uh, you know uprise of the community was 2009, and probably the letter of Bob Garrett. Yeah, was president of the IAI to the community a a couple of weeks after, a couple of days after the the release of the NRC report. But throughout the entire decade, and despite the Madrid bombing and despite everything, a lot of examiners were still believing on the indiziary rate, were still claiming that no uh, examiner currently in activity has ever made an error. 
uh, they were claiming that you know all examiner trained to competency would see the exact same thing and reach the exact same conclusion. So so showing data on variability was uh, very controversial yes. for the entire almost for the entire decade. Yeah, I mean, you you were you and I were both accused together of bringing the profession down, being the end of the profession. Christoph Shampoo is called the Antichrist for suggesting probabilities. I mean, I, I don't I, I think you're right. I don't, I don't think listeners, especially younger listeners, can appreciate how hostile the environment was to suggest alternatives you know to to how we present to their fingerprint evidence it clearly should have been the anti-christoph right oh <laughs> missed opportunity and, and i mean since you mentioned christoph i mean i think that we you you glenn and i we did not real we do not realize probably to this day how bad it was the decade before our right decade. oh in the 90s <laughs> so, yeah right I mean, the, 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 the you know, with the, the Mitchell case and David Stoney being ostracized for a few decades. Um, that's, and, Andre Moensons. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, there's been some uh, clear evolution, but it's not been easy. The uh, That model that you were working on, so you're working at the Forensic Science Service in the UK, and you have a grant to complete this model. Uh, you complete it, and, and this very first model to measure... Uh, some sort of likelihood ratio in uh, fingerprint comparisons, and how is it being used, at least initially? So, actually, we developed two models at the, the FSS. Okay. Um, the, the first model is actually, I'm ashamed almost, but it, it, it generated a few offsprings that we may talk in a few minutes, but this model was really based on uh, on scores and comparison between uh, like measure of similarity between latent print and control prints or between control prints and each other and so on and and we we went fairly far into the validation of that model and uh, the dm was to uh, to start using it in in case work and one morning i, I had to, uh, to because i was still a junior scientist i had to show it to uh, a few more senior scientists, including uh, Dr. Ian Evett. And, uh, and he came to me and uh, he was like, well, that's an interesting model, but uh, I believe it's wrong. And, you know, I spent a few years on that and we published <laughs> a few papers and uh, even I believe the FSS put a few patents on it. And then then the senior scientists tell me it's wrong. <laughs> like, oh, my God, what, what is going to happen? And, uh, is it just that blunt? Just, uh, I think that's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> he was telling, he was showing me that it couldn't be derived mathematically from first principle. Oh, and I was like, "Oops!" <laughs> so, uh, so we spent a we spent a couple of days actually, not not more than a couple of days, trying to uh, see how we can uh, we can turn that into a victory, and uh, that's how the second model was born, and that that's the model that got published in 2012 in the Royal Statistical Society paper, a new uh, journal. Oh, and that's that definitely is one of my favorite papers, um, just in the, how it answers so many different questions that might come up in court. Um, is that model then used in the, by the FSS uh, actually on actual casework at all? Uh, well, no. Um, okay. The main reason is that the FSS went bankrupt in 2010-2011. The FSS went through several transitions uh, throughout the 2000s, and, um, and one of them was that it had to function as a private 
operation in a private forensic market. Uh, things didn't go well uh, for many, many different reasons. And there's been many audience of the British Parliament on, on what happened. So uh, if, for any interested re- uh, listener, uh, you can probably find that in the archive of the British government. But um, but we went fairly far into the de- the, the validation. We uh, we had the help of uh, of Steve Miger, the FBI, that provided some data from uh, IAFIS, closed on matches. Right. Uh, and we started developing a user interface so that people could uh, could actually use the model uh, without necessarily worrying about the mathematics. Uh, we had a prototype that was uh, that was working. We implemented the the, the model, the statistical part. We implemented it into uh, the software pro, uh, created by the University of Lausanne, the Pianos software that Glenn mentioned a few times. And um, it went fairly far, but then uh, the the forensic science, or the I guess the British government decided to pull the plug and uh, and uh, make get the uh, file for bankruptcy for the forensic science service. So all of that research and technology disappeared. Literally, I've I, I have no idea where it went. I I often like to think of it in a crate in a warehouse being studied by top men. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> possibly. So Cedric, do you you said you have things were on their way? Do you think that if the FSS hadn't folded? that that model would have been utilized in casework within you know a year or two uh, of of where things were at when you left oh yes no I, I mean there was clearly a push from the fss to have it used by its own examiners where the latent print unit and uh, we had several a meeting with the association of chief police officer in the united kingdom to uh, to start talking about how to use that in case work in their patent print unit, we had meetings with the Crown Prosecutor Service to uh, to because they had, obviously they were concerned about reporting fingerprint in a different way suddenly. So it, it went really really far. We had a pilot uh, in uh, in one of the police forces in the United Kingdom that was ready to uh, to start using that in case work, even if it was as a you know, double, doubling the, the the current process. So no, it would have been used within a couple of years. Yes. And and to add to that, in the United States, we had Cedric's team come in to our agency and look at casework that we had done traditionally, looked at our identifications, our inconclusives, and ran them through the model. And we were essentially ready to start using this after the we had published on it. We were our our director was very supportive. We were we were frankly all on board with this. Wow! And then just all of a sudden, boof! It's all gone. Yep. Yeah, and and so from there, Cedric, you end up leaving the UK. I mean, you saw the writing was on the wall for FSS anyway, and so you come over to the states and become a well. I don't is assistant professor the correct word at Penn State? Yes, I was an assistant professor in the in the forensic program for two and a half years. I would say. Mm-hmm. And while there, you worked on some things as well. So. Yeah, when I moved, uh, I was fortunate to receive a grant from the National Institute of Justice, where uh, we we partnered with uh, Christoph Champo and uh, with the the with Glenn Langenberg on um, 
and the idea was to study the uh, the concept of sufficiency in a fingerprint examination. So the, the, this pro- project had two parts. One was a was a study of uh, of examiner in a in a very similar way, but probably not as as with an, such an extended scope as the white box study. But uh, essentially presenting pairs of latent and and com- and uh, control prints to latent print examiner and ask them to annotate. Uh, what they see, the level one, two, and three features, and then give us their um, their decisions uh, on the, at the analysis stage or at the evalu- evaluation stage. Yeah, I, th- I think we had an episode uh, on that as well. And I, I think we, of course, referenced you because you were the project manager on it. And we may have upset you by dismissing the statistical part of it and focus solely on (laughs) and we focus solely on the examiner variability portion and and then the well the second part of the project was about developing a statistical model to uh to support the community again and right with all that math stuff that math stuff exactly (laughs) yes i think that was the phrase that upset you (laughs) yeah um, i I, let me guess that was that was my that was my phrase i'm I'm gonna say Mm. No, I think it was me. It was you. Guys. I think I think it was Glenn. Yes. <laughs> but, um, now this model was uh, after the after we realized that focusing on scores was not necessarily a great idea. We tried to develop this model at Penn State that were fo- focusing directly on features, like so directly on the second level feature, and try to define probabilistic model uh, probability distribution for those features, and that was that was what we did for that model. And that's yeah. the model that uh, sometimes you mentioned where we studied the, um, the, the difference in, in probabilities for between cores and deltas and the different, uh, for the different uh, patterns. Right, uh, for like pattern forest areas, the probabilities would change in certain uh, areas, the delta area versus above a core or the periphery, et cetera. Yes. Right. All right, so this brings up a, a very good question without trying to get too technical and i know that might be impossible here (laughs) there there i mean there's a lot of discussion these days and you just said it yourself about you know initially these models were focused on using an aphis like approach with these aphis scores what we call these score-based models whereas at penn state you took a, a divergence from the pack and decided to look at more of the problem generating these probabilities i I mean, even today, I mean, I still struggle with the nuanced difference between the two. Is there any way you can try to help a listener understand what the subtle difference between these these models would be? Well, the, I, th- I think that the problem is not so much using a score as how you use the score. So let me uh, let me give you a non-forensic example. Um, let's say that you have an armed robbery and you have an eyewitness. And it has perfect uh, vision, and you know it's. Let's say that eyewitness is perfect. The and see the offender run out of the bank and jump into a car, and the car drives away. If say 15 minutes later you have a, a car who is pulled over, let's say for speeding, and um, the eyewitness is being asked, is that the same car? So, you know, highly similar car, same brand, same model, same color. 
So the level of similarity between the car of the offender and the the, the car of the driver that just got pulled over is really, really high. And the suspect, the, sorry, not the suspect, the eyewitness says yes. So now we have this really high score, if you want, this really high similarity, and we're trying to establish what it means in the in the context of the case. Now, the question is, what kind of, how do you design an experiment that uh, will allow you to measure the probability that the driver of the car that has been pulled over is also the bank robber? Mm-hmm. And one uh, one possible experiment would be uh, you take a lot of banks that have been robbed and you or you have people rob banks and put an eyewitness in front of the door of the bank and have the people run into their car and drive away and then 15 minutes later you present a say a picture of the car to the eyewitness and you ask them is it the same is it not the same and sometimes you give them the correct uh, correct bank robber and sometimes you don't. And so, you know, this is a bit of a same source, different source kind of thing. And you look at how many times, like the probability that they will correctly identify the car when it's the bank robber and when it's not the bank robber. Now, at, at absolutely no time in this whole story or this whole example did I mention what was the brand and the model and the color of the car. It, this, we, right. we, have, right. we have not discussed that, right? Right, but it's really, it's really, really important. I mean, if the bank robber jumped into a gray Toyota, gray SUV, a gray Toyota sedan, and just drive away, or if he jumped into a, you know, brand new yellow Lamborghini, <laughs> that's going to make a, that's going to make a big difference on your evidence, right? Right, because. One stands out a whole lot more than the other, yellow Lamborghini, and also yellow Lamborghini is much more uncommon in the population of cars. Exactly. So if if two yellow Lamborghini are spotted in the same neighborhood within 15 minutes of each other, it's a lot more likely that they are the same yellow Lamborghini than if you have two gray Toyota that are very unassuming. Right. Okay. So, 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 so one of the, 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 that's the issue with those similarity score models is that they they are very they're, they're not necessarily taking into account the rarity of the feature. Right. It's just it's just um, how close are these two cars to each other, and it doesn't matter if they're two gray Toyotas or two yellow Lamborghinis. They are visually similar. It's it's zooming way in and looking at how cl- how visually similar they all are all all the shapes of the outline of the car to everything everything else about it versus taking into account how rare or how how discriminating uh, some of those features might be uh in general yes i mean that yes that's correct there there are more there are more fundamental issues with these core-based models but they're very very technical but the, the example that we use here is one of the manifestation that of all these more fundamental issues. I think in your analogy here then, so this eyewitness representing, if you will, the APHIS system, it, it basically is converting this visually similar comparison to some kind of score, or in the case of the eyewitness, it's converting it to a decision. That thing matched what I saw. And that's yes. 
Right. So it it represents a lot of information. But as in fact, as you and I have taught over many years, sometimes when you represent information, you lose information. And it sounds like what you're saying is you might be losing some fairly critical information. Yes, that's correct. And that's getting back to how latent print examiners as humans do the comparison. You're looking to make sure that they're visually similar. The ridge counts are the same. Directions are the same. All this stuff is in there. That's part of what humans do. But we're also looking and uh, having this mental database, if you will, uh, this training that tells us how rare these features that we're actually looking at are. So then we can combine both those together to make a final decision. Both those parts are critical in when we do the work as humans and the high accuracy that we have when we we make those decisions. And then this model that only looks at the score is only kind of looking at at one part of of that same set of information. Yes, totally. And and I think that's when I hear a fingerprint examiner saying, well, well, assessing how often they have seen that much agreement between the feature in uh, the latent and the control print. I don't think that they are really doing that. I think they are assessing how much agreement that they have, but also is that agreement is in the delta or in the core or in you know the periphery? Does that level of agreement only have uh, regending or does it have trifurcations? Does it have an island and so on and so on? So so I think this, uh, in human examiner, this process is a bit blurred, but it happens. Absolutely. It's, it's not just the level of agreement. Right, right. And, and that's exactly the, the, would be the point of a, a statistical score would be to uh, add on, you know, to supplement what the examiner is doing by what a model could also do and add into that, which is a much more informed knowledge of the rarity of the features in a large database as opposed to the faulty memory and experience of the examiner yes then okay so then uh, this model that you had uh at uh, penn state uh, w- with all of this work uh where did that end up going what happened to that model uh, that ended up in 2015 when we published it and that that model was put in another crate in a government warehouse. <laughs> and next to the other Ark of the Covenant. Is, is it now in a U.S. warehouse instead of a U.K. warehouse? Oh, they're both in a U.S. warehouse. Oh, okay. But again, now not available to the community for use. That's correct. For probably I mean, a variety of reasons. This model was interesting, but I think statistically speaking, it was probably a little bit too unstable to uh, to be used. Oh, okay. All right, before we move on uh, to to your next move, uh, Glenn, why don't you uh, mention our sponsor this week? Right, and uh, along those lines of developing various models and technology, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Idemia has launched a new product called Case Aphis, 
It's a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. It's a totally standalone system. It doesn't need to connect to your main APHIS or internet. It's basically a case working tool that you can use in your cases without having to worry about security issues, firewalls, sieges permission, etc. It's standalone for your cases. You basically search latent prints from your crime scene against a closed set of knowns specific to that case, and they can be in any format. They can be toe prints, footprints, morgue prints, elimination prints, you name it. They don't have to be in a standard NIST format. And it basically will help you solve complex cases faster by um, by being more efficient and reducing erroneous exclusions. Learn more about Idemia and Case APHIS by contacting us at info.usa at idemia.com. Solve your cases faster today with Case APHIS. So, uh, Cedric, speaking of vendors and APHIS systems, what uh, what's next in the world of models for you? Uh, well, um, with a with a student, a PhD student of mine, uh, well, she was a master at the time, but we uh, we took the model, the RSS model, and we revisited it uh, using a, a, a method that called approximate Bayesian computation, and that's a that's a method that is uh, commonly used in bioinformatics and that helps doing statistical inference uh, when you have really high dimensional and, and complex data and uh, she has done a absolutely uh, awesome job and uh, and we have now a model yeah like the fifth or sixth maybe <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, we are talking to a company that uh, is interested in uh, in developing a prototype so hopefully uh, hopefully that will work and, and this would be then uh, to to sell to Police agencies to for latent print examiners to put in their latent print, their sure. known exemplar, and then have uh, the system give some sort of result. Uh, now, is that going to be a likelihood ratio? Yeah. Well, yes. Um, base factor. Yes. A base factor. Okay. Th- that base factor could then be used to express the relative strength of the association. Is that a good? Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, I mean it's, a, it's an okay way to say it. Yeah, it will uh, it will measure the both the, the the strength of the of the similarity if you want and the and the measure of the rarity. The the interesting thing with this model is it would benefit from when you search the latent print against the database, uh, it will automatically capture the rarity information, and then when you use a when you know if you have either a candidate in the candidate list or if you come up with somebody else or the detective come up with somebody else then uh, you can measure the the level of similarity and then get uh, that base factor so it's using then uh, a large database but you're the the customer supplying their own large database uh, to to measure that rarity aspect yes the idea is to uh, to bolt to have a if if you want an extra module into the AFIS system, it, it gathers the rarity information when you search the latent to get right. to the candidate list. In fact, the the rarity information will be contained in the in the candidate list. 
I mean, Cedric, ultimately, why don't you give us your thoughts on how a model like this would be used? And not just that this model, but I mean, you and I know have had conversations about some of the score based models that exist, uh, such as one currently right now in Switzerland with Christoph Shampo, Henry Swafford's model that was developed through the Army Crime Lab. I mean, how, how do models like this get, get used? And what, um, how do you, how do you see them being incorporated into a decision process? I can see that this model would be used at two different places. The, the first place is uh, at the analysis stage to assess the level of sufficiency. Uh, in my mind, the level of sufficiency is essentially a, a compound measure of the quality of the latent print and the specificity of the feature that can be observed on latent print. So that's essentially uh, in, in statistical terms, the denominator of the model. But and I mean, so if we can technically, take, yes. though, if an agency wanted to just push the limits of the field, they could really lower down that analysis aspect, that analysis limit of what they're going to start comparing. If they put through all this lower end stuff, they could still get results for it, just not as strong results as what is traditionally compared, right? And that's actually a very uh, good point, Eric. The, but the, um, the study that we did with Glenn in 2009, the, the field study in Minnesota, where we reprocessed. So the, the study was we would have a, a laboratory technician that would collect all the latent prints that she was observing, you know, as instructed or as uh, as she was trained and according to the BCA procedure. And so she was selecting, I, would, I wouldn't say, I mean, it's quote-unquote, the good ones. And they were processed by the, the latent print unit where Glenn was, the, the way they were doing it according to the SOP. And at night, that, that lady was reprocessing or, re, or was, was take, not reprocessing necessarily, but was taking additional picture and capturing additional lower quality latent prints uh, that she did not capture for the regular process. And the and then we had these lower quality latent prints, uh, literally smudges. We had uh, an examiner from at the time, Ron Smith Associates, that was comparing them to the victims, to the potential suspect in the case, and was searching them on the Minnesota AFI system. So it was essentially duplicating the system that was in place at the BCA, but with the lower quality latent print that you just mentioned. And what we observed was that after all that work for those lower quality latent prints... (laughs) And all that money and time. Yes, all that money and time, I think we had... Five. Five. That was five. Five new association between the latent and the control print, and only one of them was not already a person that was associated according to the other the other process, the, the main process. Yeah. So and true, it, and, and, and I remember talking, that study. We're talking one we're talking one in three or four thousand here, not you know, one in ten. Right. But with and that's with a traditional comparison process with the identification being the end result. But if uh this model was being used uh, and more prints were pushed through if the final result could be uh, 
a limited support for common source, then theoretically there could be a more association made than with a traditional comparison resulting in an identification. Uh, like you're saying, suggesting though, it, it definitely would cost a lot more money. But if an agency had the money and the people to do it, they they could push through uh, even more latent than what is traditionally put through that process. But that was the interest. The other interesting result was that we found a lot more information in the inconclusive that were reported by the BCA using the main process, the oh, traditional okay. process, right. than. We, we, I think it was like maybe 30-40% of those those associations that could be reported you know, at, at a weaker level than an identification, but it could be used. So you know, maybe 30-40% versus 1 in 3,000 for all that additional work. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah it, was, it, was, it was so clear-cut that the extra work digging in the weeds was not worth it. But the impressions that we had already gathered that weren't being identified, but had these inconclusive, that was where the gold mine of information was being lost. And it was already there. And as Cedric said, was part of the normal process anyway. Gathering the additional information provided almost nothing except literally it would have helped in one case out of you know thousands of impressions for six months of work. Right, right. It's it's the... The latents you already took a photo of, or you already lifted, yes. and yes. you just decided, eh, not good enough to compare. No, they they were compared. They just they didn't reach a level of identification. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. Or or we needed additional exemplars to you know affect the ID, but there were already five, six, seven minutia in correspondence. You know that kind of thing. So they they got reported that I was inconclusive, but as Cedric said, the model showed there was a gold mine of information there. If we and at that time, BCA was not willing to say anything more than simply inconclusive. Right. Okay, I'm sorry, uh, Cedric, we, we went on a little tangent here. So then that's that's one out time uh, to use the models during analysis, deciding what to compare. And then the uh, the other time would be at the the end during uh, evaluation? Yes, no, exactly. I mean, if we could use the model to filter the at the analysis stage to make sure that we only keep the what's going to be useful and not clog the system, I think that's a, that's a, that's a big issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be a big advantage. And then the second is what Glenn mentioned is to try to dig into that inconclusive range and try to to tease out some other valuable information. Uh, you know, I mean, even in cases where the person has been identified numerous times, you can have several identification on the you know the outside of the of the front window and an inconclusive on the on the hammer that was used to uh on the victim. So so even in those cases it can be useful to uh to process those inconclusive. Uh, so this model is hopefully going to be coming out available soon, but there there is a model currently available to at least uh, US agencies uh by getting in touch with the US Army Crime Lab. Uh and that's uh, the model called FR Stat uh that was spearheaded by Henry Swafford He's recently left um, that agency. Uh, they're still the one to contact a- about all this stuff. Uh, and that's available for agencies to use. And the Army has re- has started for a year or so now, been reporting out a number with identifications, and has even used it at least once in uh, in court, in, again, military court, but 
uh, in court, uh, expressing the strength of the association. Uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on FR Stat in general, um, maybe some of the good things about it, some of the limitations of it. With all of your years of experience in various models, what you thought of this one? Well, I think this this model is awesome in the sense that it allows to explore various things about how to use models in the community. So, for example, there's still two camps, and one one has the majority, but do we want to use a model uh, before we make the decision, or do we want to to use the model after we make a decision of identification or decision of association? So that's one of the questions. do uh, do we want like what's the level of verification depend uh, after we process the model? Let's say the model gives you an extremely high number. Do you have the same level of verification than if the model gives you a fairly low number? Uh, there's there's a lot of operational issue that needs to be discussed about the implementation of the model, and I think that Henry's model because it's now used as a prototype by several agencies. They can they can play around. They can look at uh, what's happening with the model. What happens when you change the annotation on the latent in the control print? When you add minutia, remove minutia. Uh, so that's going to create a lot of discussion around documentation. So I, I think for from that perspective, that model is absolutely awesome. And and I encourage people to explore it and to explore all the associated operational issues that with it. Uh, no, I, I agree. I think. The community, if nothing else, community is getting used to the concept, and this is teaching people what a model can do and how it uh, it can be used, like you're saying, during analysis, during uh, evaluation, affecting what kind of quality assurance procedures go forward, uh, depending on what the score is, uh, this kind of stuff. So, if nothing else, yeah, absolutely, it's it's definitely getting the community used to to this concept. I mean, there, there are a couple of weaknesses with that model. Um, the first the first weakness is a scientific weakness. And uh, we have been discussing and legal scholar and scholar and scientists, scientific scholars and you know people like Christophe Champo have been around the world literally uh, saying that the Bayesian framework is the only logical and coherent framework that uh, allows you to think about the evidence, which, and I agree with that statement. Now, Henry's model, and he acknowledges himself in his paper, is not a likelihood ratio. Uh, and he does the ratio of two probabilities, but those probabilities have nothing to do with each other. So doing their ratios would be dangerous. But he's reporting two probabilities that are, ex- that are interesting and um, and helpful in themselves, but the model itself does not output something that is compatible with Bayesian uh, thinking. So that, that that's for the scientific scientific issue. It, it, it's not it's not necessarily an issue if you don't claim that you want to reason using the Bayesian framework, but it becomes a scientific issue if you do claim that you want to reason under using the Bayesian framework. I, yeah, I think you've, I, I've heard you say it before. If you're going to use it as a decision model, it's fine. That That's great. No problem. If you're going to use it as a Bayesian model or claim to be Bayesian, which he is not, then you would have a problem. So yeah, that's correct. Let, let me let me try to do a, a quick summary to, to translate if you, uh, for 
for any latent print examiners that didn't quite get all that, or even if you're not in the latent print field uh, and just going, wait, what are they talking about now? So let me let me give this a try, and at the end, you can tell me how close to <laughs> correct I got it. Um, so in a traditional uh, Bayesian framework, when you're reporting on a likelihood ratio, which is kind of the work that you're currently working on, Cedric, right? Yes. Um, you're looking at a, a quotient, a ratio, uh, one number divided by another number. The top number uh, being how similar this latent print is to this known print in this case. These two things that, that you're comparing, the latent print examiner is comparing, how close are they together? What's the probability that they came from the same source? That whole aspect, looking at those two. And you're dividing that by kind of the defense argument that the similarities between these two prints are just coincidental. And you're comparing the latent print to its closest non-match from a very big database. So if that that matches up, just in a large database, you happen to find something that matches really close, then that latent print isn't very specific. And then since it's in the denominator, you get a lower score. But if it doesn't match anything like even close, then that gets the score much higher. How am I doing so far? Yeah, the, the model is essentially a measure of similarity divided by rarity. Right. There you go. Okay, so then with the uh, with Henry's model with FR Stat, uh, it's looking at things well, quite differently. Uh, they took a num- a large number of test prints, and they ran it through a similarity score model to get basically kind of the num- the numerator part of this to see okay when two prints come from the same source uh, for let's say ten minutia, what does the score distribution look like? And then if you take two random, not not close on match, but just two randomly different prints uh, and put them next to each other, how what does the similarity score distribution look like for those two prints? And then you have these two peaks of you know actual matches and not even close matches. And then when you later come in with your latent print in your case and uh, you have a score, where does it fall in between these two peaks? Is it really close? Is it like really into the the matching peak, or is it in the non-matching peak? And then the ratio that the FR stat eventually expresses is this ratio between kind of where basically where it falls in the match peak and where it falls in the non-match peak. How do I do? Uh, almost, except the last sentence. Because the, the ratio, as, as far as I can tell from their paper, I don't know if they have changed since the paper and they changed their implementation, but uh, if they were doing what you uh, you uh, suppose they were doing, there would be a classic score-based likelihood ratio. But I think they went one way further and they actually look at, they take the latent print from the case and the control print from the case, they get the score, and then using that score and their these two distributions that you described, they look at what's the probability to make a false identification using, at, if I was to make a decision of identification at that score, what's the probability that it would be a false identification? And if I was to make an exclusion at that score, what's the probability that I'm going to make a false exclusion? So the ratio that is reporting is a ratio between the false positive divided by the false negative. Right, right. Uh, yes, that's my understanding too. The big limitation here being is that again we're get boiling things down to a score, and then looking at how the score fits 
an existing set of data and not looking at the minutia from uh, this specific latent print. We're not looking at the rarity of the features. Now, they do account for some of that in the, in the paper. He describes how they account for some of this by, by setting up this data set using features based around a delta in thumbs as being pretty generic. So then saying, okay, this would probably be a far underestimation in most cases of the score, but still not looking at the specific features of this specific comparison when reporting out the number. Well, the, I think the main issue is that they are putting a number on that old saying that, you know, it's better to have a hundred guilty free than one innocent in jail. Because yeah. they, they, are, they are essentially telling the court, at that score, I have the risk of erroneous identification of maybe one in a thousand, and I have a risk of erroneous exclusion of one in a million. Right. So who has decided that these risks are acceptable and it should not be one million versus one thousand? It's a good question. I, I've been hoping to ask you this because the thing, one of the things about this paper that made me really that really has held me back from from really embracing this is that to establish the peak the non-matching peak he used random prints not close non-matches uh, any any thoughts on on that aspect of of the fr stat yeah I've, i had a problem with the way he generated that second distribution i think because he, he he put himself in a situation, and by himself, I mean the, the, the collective of author. They put themselves right. in a situation where they did not minimize the distance between the two distributions. He, they did not make everything they could to make them as close to each other as possible, as far as I remember from the paper. So, I yes, mean, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's just doing a random assignment of what's the, the latent to known that more maximizes the distance between the two peaks. Yes, so aside from models, Cedric, I'm aware that you are uh, in the process of publishing a paper right now on the Miami-Dade paper statistics, which listeners, I think, would be very keen to hear a little bit about and should uh, be paying attention to this paper. Because right now, probably one of the hardest things is being asked about the PCAST report and then being thrown a 1 in 18 error rate for fingerprints which if you're not familiar with some of those issues with that paper and how to handle those kinds of questions, that, that that's a tough number to deal with in court on the stand. I want to talk a little bit about that paper and some of the research you did there? Yeah, so the, this, this paper actually arise from a class that was running with my two PhD students, Madeline and Jesse, last, uh, last semester. And we were studying how to do inference with false positive and false negative in uh, biology and bio, bio array and all, all of that stuff. And we decided to, uh, I don't exactly remember how we came across the Miami paper and why we decided that paper would be a good example as a class project, essentially. But uh, we did. And what we tried to do is instead of calculating, so acquiring the data uh, using you know same source, different source comparison, and so on, and then ending up a prob in a problem like they had in Miami uh, with their project, where 
what what is the denominator of your error rate and now when you have because they didn't compare just the trace against one single control but there was a search element uh, they had uh, they were provided with three endpoint cards each time so you know is the numerator the denominator uh, just one comparison or was it 30 comparison or things like that so and and every time that even the source was present potentially there was a possibility of error because there are 29 other fingers that don't match it. Yes, that is correct. And there was a, there was a lot of those, those, those observations then are not independent like they are in the Noblis black box study because obviously if you make an identification to one of the 30 fingers, then you either have 29 correct exclusion or 28 correct exclusion and one erroneous identification in the process and, and one erroneous exclusion as well. So so this, this kind of design is very complicated. So what we, uh, we decided is we are going to take an assumed error rate and we're going to model how the experiment was run and we're going to see, well, if that's the way the experiment is run, if the error rate, the rate of erroneous identification and the rate of erroneous exclusion is a given number, what is the count of erroneous exclusion and erroneous identification that we should have observed at the end? And you can do that with many different uh, rates of errors, and you can do that with, uh, you can repeat the experiment because it's the computer repeats the experiment. And uh, and what we found is that the error rate that was the PCAST error rate uh, was way over-evaluated, exaggerated. Even the 3% that was reported by the, the team, the research team in Miami, was overestimated. That's the 1 in 24, I, th- I think? Yeah. I mean, th- then it became very interesting. It's actually, it was a very interesting uh, experiment and project because then we started to, uh, to look at those... Uh, uh, separately between when the, the true source was provided and when the true source was not provided. And we realized that there was far more false identification when the true source was provided when the, than when the true source was not provided. Uh, we also noted that a lot of the false identification when the true source was provided was to another finger from the same source. I think there was something like 35 erroneous identification to uh, the correct person with the wrong finger. So and and I know that in your show you have speculated that they're clerical error or, or not, and I don't want to speculate. They're just from my perspective, they're erroneous identification to the correct person. And <laughs> I've never heard that before, but that's a great way of putting it. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I, I have some mixed feeling about those thirty-five, but so that's why I call them, you know, erroneous identification to the correct person. And <laughs> when when we start looking at that data and we start uh, do, running the experiment the way we did, we find that the error rates of the participants, the average error rates to the participants of the study is something like 1% at most. And again, that, so, that would fall before verification, which would theoretically reduce that even further in actual casework. That is correct, yes. Well, that, so, that's my understanding from the way they've run their experiment. So conservatively, and, and I think that's the word you, you've used before, conservatively, you would put that error rate at closer to one in a hundred then. Yes, I would, I would, if, if not, I think if we not discount, but if we, if we separate the erroneous identification to the correct person and we put them in their 
own category. So I'm not doing what PCAS said we should not do. I'm not doing a post hoc analysis. I'm just creating a category that is erroneous identification to the correct person. So they are in their separate category. So if we look at the rate of erroneous identification to the wrong person, uh, the, the rate is the same or very, very similar to the one in the black box study. Which would be more like one in 500, one in 1,000. That is correct, yes. Um, all right. Well, uh, what, uh, what journal is that going to be uh, published in? So we, we're doing something. Uh, we're trying to be creative this time. And we have submitted and has been accepted by the Journal of Forensic Identification. Um, but I, I think there are some fascinating issues with error rate. So, for example, you know, does it matter if the error rate is 3% or 5%? I mean, the magnitude is not is not that big. I mean, I understand it matters if it's 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 18, but 1 in 24 versus 1 in 18 is not necessarily not necessarily important. I, I, I don't know. I'm Obviously, I'm not a practitioner, but uh, there's, there's some interesting issue related to communication of error rate and, and so on. So what we're trying to do with uh, Alan McRoberts, the editor of the Journal of uh, Forensic Identification, is to solicit comments on that uh, oh. paper and um and we have contacted a few people and i'm uh, you know if some of your listeners are interested in providing comments they can probably uh, reach out to you guys who then will reach out to me and i will forward happily forward the paper the deadline i think is is within a couple of weeks so yeah. if if some of your listeners are interested in providing some comments they need to uh to hurry up but um <laughs> yeah the, the, so the idea is to publish the paper and the associated comments from the, the community. And the, and the comments don't have to be necessarily of the methodology that we used to address the error rate, but it can be anything related to error rate in fingerprint examination, like how to report it, how to think about it, how to design the experiment, and so on and so on. Yeah, in, in fact, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that paper, and I, I am one of the people that will be submitting some comments. I, I think a discussion about error rates is really appropriate because at the moment right now we really have basically the NAS and PCAST, you know, as the authoritative opinion on this right now. And I would, I would like more discussion about it because I think Cedric, I think you are looking at it in a very novel way and a very novel way to calculate these. And I don't like being told by PCAST, this is the only way to do it because I think that's a very myopic, narrow view when, as you well know and listeners I'm sure know as well, uh, that there are multiple ways to uh, to approach these computations. There are multiple ways to communicate these. And for PCAST to decide there's one and only one correct way to do that, I don't know that they have the authority. Or, and, and I even question sometimes the knowledge base to do that. Well, here, here, Glenn, I... <laughs> I would have to totally agree with you, Cedric. Uh, anything else that uh, you want to to, to uh, discuss with uh, all our listeners about stuff you've been working on, so you've been interested in? Um, or... No, I mean I uh, thank both of you for uh, hosting me, and uh, it was a pleasure to spend that time with you and uh, some interesting discussion. I know we'll have uh, some further interesting discussion. I'm going to attend the II this year for the first time in many many years. I've heard many times that uh, Cedric was upset with the AI and that's why I didn't show up. No, that's not. That was not the case. <laughs> I had uh, some family trouble since I moved to uh, to the United States, and I have my daughter with me uh, every summer, so that prevented me from 
traveling too much over the summer, but now she has grown up and, uh, and I, so I can resume traveling and resume attending the IIS. I'm really looking forward to uh, see uh, many of your listeners uh, in Reno. In Reno, yep. Reno in the summertime. Definitely welcome back to the conference. Well, yes, thank you so much for coming on here, Cedric. Um, definitely glad uh, to to have you on and um, and actually hope to have you on again uh, in the next oh, year or so probably uh, with, with the further discussions about additional research, uh, additional papers. Um, that would be fantastic because I, I honestly, I feel like we just scratched the surface with the things that we could discuss with you uh, on an episode. Well, then, then hopefully within the next year, we'll have uh, some good news about an operational commercial model. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be a perfect time to, to come back on and and talk about all the nuances of, of different models and, and uh, let listeners know how their agency can get a hold of one. Yeah, thank you, Cedric. Um, it, it's always good to talk to you. And, you know, um, again, for the listeners, Cedric and I have been friends for, for many, many years. And it, it is, it's a pleasure knowing someone like Cedric who's very passionate about the improvement of forensic science and I've just watched over the years, you know, really, frankly, I'm, I'm not, this isn't hyperbole, your genius just get infused into these ideas. And I've seen you come up with really amazing ideas and research projects. So it's, it's always been a pleasure to work alongside you and see you just generate some, some pretty cool research. Well, thank you. I mean, the, I really enjoy working in you know, as I mentioned in the show earlier that uh, casework was not for me, but I, I really, <laughs> I really believe that that research needs to be useful and anchored in casework. So uh, I'm trying to spend as much time as possible with practitioners. Yep, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So uh, as we wrap up here, I'll just uh, plug upcoming stuff. Going to be adding some, some a bunch of new classes in 2019. But right now on the books, uh, we're going to be offering an exclusion class with John Black. That's going to be offered in uh, Baton Rouge at the end of April, April 29th through May 3rd. And then we'll also be offering an advanced ACE V course, and that will be in Hackensack, New Jersey, and that will be April 8th through the 12th. And then lastly, this new uh, partnership with Idemia and Ron Smith and Associates, where we're offering a course in ACE V, but using technology, where the student will get a chance to work with Gyro and uh, GIMP, and they'll work with a case APHIS, and they'll be working with a statistical model. They'll be able to work with pianos and some other uh, software that's out there. All these kinds of things where the student will get exposed to essentially freeware that's available out there, not the case APHIS, that's not free, but the rest of it is <laughs> free, uh, to enhance their examinations. And just uh, like we've been talking about this episode, get a chance to see how a stats model works, see how it can be incorporated into a decision-making model process and all these different kinds of things, just taking ACEV to the next level. That's January 8th, 9th, and 10th in Anaheim, California in 2019. And if you're interested in exclusionology, uh, that'll be April 8th, 9th, and 10th in Hollywood, Florida. Florida, not, not California. And uh, that same week, uh, I'll be doing my new class, Gyro in Photoshop, April 11th and 12th. And you can sign up for both classes for the full week or for one or the other. And you can go to rayforensics.com for that. So if any of you listeners out there have any questions or thoughts or comments on uh, this episode or any episode, 
even want to throw some comments or questions all the way over to Cedric, uh, you can send Glenn and I emails, uh, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Don't forget to follow us at Double Loop Pod on Twitter. And uh, you can listen to our show, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. You just open up one of those apps, hit subscribe for us. Uh, you can leave us reviews or ratings. That's one way to help us out. Another way to help us out is tell someone else about the podcast. Spread the word so we can get more listeners. Or also you can consider contributing, becoming a patron of the art of podcasting through patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Uh, and uh, we've been thinking lots of new subscribers uh, to that. And and uh, it's, it's definitely helping out. We can just slowly see more and more people um, helping out our little show. Uh, so remember, the opinions expressed on the Double Loop podcast belong to the speaker and not to anyone else. And with that, uh, thank you guys, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Okay, thank you very much. Bye.